So um, this morning, we are going to continue our look at the um, road to Emmaus. Looking back at the Old Testament, it's going to be a little different. We're going to go through, uh, and sorry the notes went out so late today. Um, anyway, so if you check your email, you would have them now. Glenn's making some copies to pass around when he uh, comes back in. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3, the fall, um, the authority of Christ at the very end of Matthew 28, and Romans chapter 5 what that authority means and how it applies to us as we share our faith in, um, in Christ and in the gospel. Um, so how that works. So um, I, um, and the focus of this study this morning is going to be two things. Um, the, the fall is rooted in lies, right? The lies of the devil come to the temptation of Adam and Eve and in those lies, they make wrong choices. And then those choices have very bad results, the curses that we all live under now. And, but inside those curses, there's still a kernel of hope um, because we have the hope for the seed that will come to the woman, that the serpent who's done all this evil stuff, his head will be crushed. Um, and so everything will be, made right, will be made right one day. It'll all come back to where it's supposed to be one day. Um, and so that's the, the hope inside the fall and the lies of Satan. And, and so how that applies to us and how we live that out and how that uh, comes in and, and gives peace to us in those difficult times where we feel like we're under the curse <laughs> that we can, we can carry on and we can share our faith with others. So with that being said, I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll dive in. Okay. So father, we are grateful that you call us together, that you uh, give us a record of the saints in the past um, which demonstrate um, the truth of who you are, how you love, and we can learn from their examples, these in the past, so that we can make right choices in our path of life today. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm going to start. So if you got the email, you'll get to see this, but it's a really cool little picture of a, of a mouse um, floating in a bottle of water, like a little clear jar of water. Now, in the 1950s, they did an experiment at Harvard University. This doctor did. And I don't ask me why people do stuff like this. It was really kind of brutal. So he did this test to see how long a rat, a mouse, could tread water before it would drown. Nothing to do today. Let's get a beaker and get some water. Find a rat, okay? So it turns out they can only last about 15 minutes. And then they just give up and they die. So then he thought, I'm going to do one thing different this time. Right before 15 minutes hits... Let's take that same rat. Let's take them out of the water. Let's dry them off. Let's let them rest a little while. And then let's put them back in the water and see what happens. You want to guess what happened? He went longer. Yes, he went longer. You want to guess how much longer that little rat could swim? Twice as long. That would be from 15 to 30 minutes. Higher. You got the notes? You've already read the notes. You read the notes. If you got the notes, you got the answer. Yeah. 60 hours from 15 minutes and death expanded to 60 hours in exhaustion and drowning. Now, what was the critical difference between the first time and the second time? Hope. He had hope of survival. Yeah. Hope that someone would rescue him. Hope he'd be dried off. Hope he would get rest. Hope. Without hope, you have nothing, which is one of the reasons hell is a hopeless place because there is no hope in hell. No hope at all. So the, um, 
authority that Christ displays at the delivery of the Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter 28, those last closing verses, is, is where we get a lot of hope because Jesus says, all authority under heaven and earth has been granted to me. And the next thing he says, the next verse is, therefore, so because of this truth I've just told you, and this thing that you now know, therefore, you go do this. And he says, go, go into all the world and share the gospel. Go teach people all I've taught you. Go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that is the authority. Because of the authority, we have authority. And because of that authority, we have a command. And that command for us is to go and share the hope that we have because of the knowledge of the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. Now I have to, you know, I gotta, I gotta be the stinger, right? I gotta put that question out to you. So uh, let me just say this. I'm actually going to read it to you right here. Cause it's interesting. Some of the things that happened. So then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. Jesus said, when I remember at the tomb, he said, you tell everybody to go meet me in Galilee. That's where I'm going to meet him. Shows up on the mountaintop. Mountaintops are special places of revelation from God. Mount Sinai, the Mount of Transfiguration. All kinds of special things happen on mountains with God. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But an interesting phrase. But some doubted. They saw him dead. They see him alive. Some say, this is Jesus. This is God. They worship him. Only God was allowed in Scripture to be receive worship without something happening. And there it is. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them everything I've taught you to obey. And this is the hope right here. Additional piece of hope. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age to the conclusion of all things, to when all this is played out and it's all done, there's nothing else left to do and it's all come to us nice little, put a bow on it and tie it up, here's your box delivered, I'm going to be there with you. That's great hope in that, right? Now, in Romans chapter five, we'll connect this from that point of who Jesus is from this hope back to our study today in Genesis chapter three in the fall, because if we look at Romans chapter five, the death through Adam and the life through Christ verses is starting in verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin entered into the world uh, by one man, Adam and death through sin came to us, everything got corrupted by his, by the choices that were made there. They had the choice. And this is the way death came to all people because all have sinned. And that's why everybody dies because there's sin in the world. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not charged against anyone's account where there was no law. Now, nevertheless, death reigned, controlled from the time of Adam uh, to the time of Moses, and even to those who did not sin by breaking the command as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. But this is the gift. The gift is not like the trespass. Now, hear what he's saying. Paul's saying that the sin that Adam incurred, that we all incur, that curse that comes upon us, it's similar to what happens in the hope that Jesus provides for us. But, it's, but the hope is so much greater than the curse. It's overwhelming. But the gift, the gift of salvation, the hope of Christ, is not like the trespass that Adam committed. For if by many For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift 
that came by the grace of this one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses. Multiplied sins are covered by this one gift and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more? Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through this one man, Jesus Christ. It's it's a it's the the effects of sin and that choice that day that Adam and Eve made in the garden went out in an exponential fashion across all of creation and polluted it and corrupted it. However, when Christ stood on that cross and was crucified and allowed himself to be die, to die and to allow his blood to be shed, when that blood was shed, when that event took place, the volume, the geometric progression of the covering of the sins was greater than the one sin that started the original condemnation to start with, because it's not just one sin that was covered in Adam. It was all sin that was covered that resulted from that. It is so much larger, the grace that we experience. So, you got a question. Mr. Roy, question number one. I understand that concept you just explained, and I agree with it. However, if you look at scripture, it says broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many are called, few were chosen. So that one sin that caused a lot of death to come, it seems like more people are going to die and not make eternal life. I mean, in, in heaven than death. So that would seem to be the bigger issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, well, that's why we're here, right? To share our truth and our hope and our knowledge in the gospel. And you're right. Yeah, Jesus said, you know, broad is the way that leads to destruction, as narrow as that path that leads to righteousness, that leads to heaven, that goes to God. You're absolutely right. I think what Paul is saying here is that when you look at the totality of this, it wasn't a Adam sin and Jesus died and that canceled out Adam. It's Adam sin and sin multiplied. And Jesus captured all that sin. Now, people are going to choose to, uh, again, goes back to that choice. We're going to pick. The the sin is covered. The question is whether you will receive it or not. There's a famous case I think I've told you about before. American presidents have the power constitutionally to pardon criminals. And there was a president, I think it was Andrew Jackson, pardoned a bank robber who in the process of the bank robbery in Pennsylvania, a murder was committed and he was sentenced to death. And for some reason, Andrew Jackson heard about his case as a favor to someone. I don't know what the situation was. He granted a presidential pardon to the man in prison who was waiting to be executed. The word came to the man in prison. The man read the terms of the pardon. You are now free to go. And the man says, I don't want it. Gave it back. I'm going to die for my crimes. I will be executed. It was a constitutional crisis. It had never happened before that anyone had refused a pardon from president. It had to go all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And in the end, the Supreme Court of the United States said, if this man refuses to receive the pardon the president is extending to him, the president cannot force the pardon upon him. His execution will stand. And that's where we are in what you're asking. Yes, broad is that pathway to destruction. Absolutely. However, the people choose not to receive the forgiveness that God has allowed through his magnanimous grace through Jesus and sacrificing his son. 
<laughs> you need another cup of coffee. <laughs> All right. Pass them out. Thank you. No, 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 no. No, it's not for me. No, Thank you. Here, here. Pass them out. Thank you. Here you go. Thank you, Glenn. I appreciate that. Uh, I tried to do it double-sided because there's 11 pages. Yes. Times five copies. I know. You're, you're trying to save the Lord's money. I know. Oh, it's awful. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. You're doing, hey, but hey, you just made a big deposit in your heavenly account. So. Yeah, only a bigger hammer will work to fix this one. So when we... Does anybody else got anything else to say about that? There are a couple of scriptures that... Um, uh, indicate just what you said. They, they, I like the uh, part of an example. If a man has paid off everyone in this room's debt, then the debt's paid. All have had their debt paid off. But if you don't understand that or know that or get that, then you still live as if your debt hasn't been paid off. And in there lies a little bit of um, um, issue that says but if the debt's been paid what happens to me and uh, this is I think the, the standard interpretation is you've got to receive that your debt's been paid if you don't receive it it's as if it hasn't been paid because what is the, the key five letter word in Christian life faith. faith that's exactly right who said that Harold, good job, Harold. It's faith. Faith is a key word the in the Christian life. Wants. This is what the devil wants from you. He wants to take away your faith that you believe that this has happened. You, you won't have evidence a lot of times that it has happened, although your life, that you live as if you're free man, you live as if your debt's been paid, is your faith. That is the evidence of substance of your faith. That you now live like you believe it. Yeah. So if you don't live like you believe it, then James might say, you don't have any faith. I don't even know what your faith is all about. You say stuff, but you don't act like it. Right. Faith living is real living, and it believes that my debt has been paid. But if you keep blaming yourself and, and criticizing yourself and then, or, or trying to earn your way, earn your happiness, earn your salvation, you are not living by faith. But the yeah. debt has been paid for all who will receive it. Exactly. So that, that so leaves us. a little mystery. That has it been paid for everybody? Even Hitler? He didn't receive it, but yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, you have to believe that Jesus took all the sin of all the world from the first sinner to the last sinner and sucked it all up and was placed on him. But that leads us to the story today in Genesis chapter three, because that is the very first lie and temptation the devil brings to this young couple in this perfect environment. Has God indeed said? That's the first thing that happens in verse one. Has God indeed said? And then by verses two and three, Eve is responding and she begins to engage with this serpent. And but what does she do? She begins to add to what God has said because she says some extra things in there. And that's how people can be. We can take the words of God and we can add to them. And that makes us feel better. And I don't know if, if Adam and Eve maybe had a conversation one day. He's like, what are you doing? You realize how close you are to this tree? Don't even get, don't look at it. Don't touch it. Don't do it. Don't even come up here. 
You know, I don't know. Maybe that's how that, that got added in there. Maybe it was there. He, he like tried to like reprimand her. I don't know. But for some reason, she added those words. We don't even touch it, which isn't what God said. And then in verses four and five, the serpent questions the motives of God and the power of God. You shall not surely die for God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Now, in verse six, Eve makes her choice and Adam joins her in disobeying the one rule they had. And in verse seven, the results of that sin show up and Adam and Eve start the great cover up. And how they started sewing fig leaves together to cover and hide their shame. Now, if you read, for me, I read the works of our hands and our hearts are insufficient to hide the results of the chasm of our disobedience to God. That's how I see that. And then in addition, there's an additional lie that's not in scripture here, but if you if you think about it, you'll see it. There's an additional lie, and I don't know if it, you could say it came from Satan, it came from them, but there's an additional lie in there. It says this, you cannot go to God with this because you screwed up and it's unforgivable and that's the lie of self-condemnation that we experience you must hide from god and that's exactly what they did they hid from god and then of course in verse eight god approaches them in the cool of the day he would walk with them in the garden what a beautiful picture of relationship and it this is a point of accountability and so he has a question where are you now, God knows where they are, obviously. He's God. But, you know, Jesus did the same thing in John chapter 6 when he's getting ready to feed the 5,000. In verse 5, he turns to Philip and he says, where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? You think Jesus didn't have a clue? No, he knew exactly what was going to happen, right? I mean, that's one of the most mind-boggling aspects of God is he has to deal with us. He knows what we're going to say and how we're going to act and everything. And he still chooses to relate to us. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to relate to somebody like us when you knew every little thing Karen was going to think before she thought it or asked it or said it, and I'm still going to have a carry on a conversation and relationship with you. That is frustrating beyond belief, but he's God. And then in verses 10 through 13, Adam and Eve, they begin the blame shift, right? And they each blame each other. And finally they landed on the serpent. We're tempting them. And then 14 and 15, the serpent is cursed. And then 16, Eve is cursed. And then in 17 and 19, Adam and the earth is cursed for what Adam does. And I think if you look at the, 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 the amount of words that are used here, Adam gets the brunt of it. The responsibility truly does rest on him based on how the punishments are handed out. And then in 20, Adam names Eve mother of all living. And then in 21, the Lord God made, he then God steps in. And it says the Lord God made coverings for them proper coverings that would cover. He sacrificed animals to get the skins. That was when the innocent blood was shed for the first time. So in my mind, when I see this in my mind, you know, cause I've got a very active imagination. Eve had a favorite lamb, woolly. He was the cutest little white lamb and he was so fun and he would frolic and jump and he would play on rocks and he would sleep and be a pillow. And she just loved little woolly. He was the most special little thing in the world. He went everywhere with her. And then what does Jesus do that day in the garden? But whistle for Wooly to come and he picks up Wooly at that rock and he takes a flint stone and it's got that sharp edge and she's like what are you doing what are you doing with Wooly well Wooly's innocent right Wooly didn't do anything what are you doing my Wooly Wooly's got to die what Wooly's got to die 
well, blood has to be shed here for what you've done. That's the only way this can be fixed. And then, and I think it's not just woolly. I think there's a whole host of animals are made here. Because like uh, one translation says, he made tunics out of animal skins. This isn't just like a bikini. This is a wardrobe is being fashioned here. That's how I see it. And this thing that I, th- I think, I think that the, the, the magnitude of what they had done got one degree deeper when the innocence of the lamb, the animal that was sacrificed, was weighed upon him. That's how I see it. He made those coverings um, to protect these newly fallen ones. And then in 22 to 24, us, us drives out Adam and Eve because it says uh, they have eaten. They become like us, knowing good and evil. And the Trinity has a council, divine council, says, what can we do? we got to get them out of here before they eat the tree of life. we got to get them out of here. And what are we going to do to keep them out? We're going to set up not just one angel, but cherubim. That's plural angels, these magnificent, strong, intimidating creatures of God's uh, domain. And they guard the way, the entrance, the east entrance to the Garden of Eden with that fiery uh, sword. They're posted there, turns every which way. So here we have it. Revelation. God introduces himself decision. You must choose to believe what God has said. Then we see accountability. God approaches and evaluates the response to him. And then we see judgment. And the judgment, it doesn't have to be bad all the time. Or just when you hear the word judgment, it doesn't mean something bad every time. It can mean blessings for you. Or in the case today, it could mean cursing, a curse. But there are two outcomes we see from this. And our application for us in this short look at this is that when we reject what God has said and we choose our own way, we are not allowed the luxury of choosing our own consequences. You have the luxury of choosing your own path, of deciding if you're going to believe what God has said, deciding whether this Bible is real and true. If it is the word of God, you have that luxury but once you take that path and that choice to say, nope, this isn't right. I'm not going to go with this. You no longer have the luxury to decide what the consequences will be for that choice. That's God's decision. Now, there's a prophetic application as well. You know, there's a pattern. There's a pattern of sinful behavior and painful results all through Scripture. I mean, you can't open a page of the Bible hardly without seeing it where somebody makes a wrong choice and a painful result comes to them. Is played out over and over. Now, the ultimate, the pinnacle result of accepting the word of Satan over the word of God is a false worship system that's set up at the last temple in Jerusalem at the end of time. And that same temptation that seduced Adam and Eve, that same temptation is alive in our world today, and people face it. And that temptation is that they will allow um, the world to sway them away from God. And they will choose to take the values of Satan and they will follow those. And then ultimately what happens with all that is the man of sin is revealed, the Antichrist, and they worship him instead of God. That's in Revelation chapter 13, verses four. The people worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast and they worshiped the, the beast. And they ask, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against him? And when we give heed to the words of Satan, we feed him power and we give him authority over us. The authority he really doesn't actually have because Jesus says, I have all authority. But we cede that authority when we give in to Satan. In verse 13 of Revelation 7, uh, 13, verse 7, it says, It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, which is not a good thing. And it was given authority over every tribe, 
people, language, and nation. Now, this is truly disturbing when you think about it, because we are supposed to be the overcomers, right? Isn't that what scripture says? We have overcome by the blood of the lamb. But here we see those who believe in God, and they're being overcome by Satan. They are being overcome by the satanically empowered ruler of the earth at the end of time. And the reason I think it happens is because these aren't just regular saints like Old Testament believers, but like us today. These are the tribulation saints, those that are believing in this really unique period of time when Satan himself is on the earth empowered. And all the inhabitants of the earth worship the beast and all whose name have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. And the end of the book in Revelation, the ending result of all that believing what Satan says is his word instead of believing what God says is his word takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Garden of Eden when he had that first lie and they first doubted what God was saying and they slay, and the lamb had to be slain that day. Before there was an atom and before there was an Adam, there was a lamb who was covering all of history and all of our mistakes with his blood for our forgiveness. So practically for us as an application, we engage in this day as we attempt to take control of the temple of God, our bodies. So if we refuse in worship to worship God freely and express our appreciation and worship to God, we're closing the doors to the temple of our hearts, refusing to let God come in deeper and refuse to open the mouth of our temple and declare who God is to others. Later on, I want you to, your homework is to read Psalm 150 privately and reflect on that and how it reflects on you and your worship. Let's go to Genesis chapter one, or chapter three, verse one. Yes, sir, Mr. Roy. I just had the thought that, um, and, I, and I hope this is a good thought. Okay, let's hear it. That the saints will be raptured before the tribulation happens. That's number one. But number let's two, pray that's true. I, I pray that that is true. That's a lot easier path than the other way. Yes, it is. But those that are left behind, so to speak, uh, in the tribulation, there is so much, uh, in my opinion, to overcome for those believers because it's not just a matter of do you believe, can you hear the word, can you receive it, but they can't buy or sell nothing until they have the mark, you know. They're going to be starving. Um, there, there's going to be secret police and, and brothers going to turn in brother and sisters going to turn in sister and all this kind of stuff. And so to me, that just, it just seems like it's an extra burden for them to, to come to the faith. But God's going to send the holy angel to, to proclaim salvation too. But it just seems like today we in the United States can walk around and we can believe and stuff. And so many people have, have rejected the Bible, rejected God, rejected Christ and everything. And we got it easy. And all, and all they have to do is just kind of believe. So I just, it's just going to be tough in that. In that the arena. testimony of martyrs in China, in, even in the Middle East, in Africa, is that their faith grows under this kind of persecution while ours wanes, and uh, I think I've shared with y'all with this class before, when the Chinese missionaries came here about four years ago, I think, I asked uh, the man, he was only here one Sunday, and I asked him, what do you think the church needs in America? 
And he kind of lowered his eyes and said, persecution. And so uh, I agree with you. It'll be terrible times. But but in other places, the, the history of the, the martyrs is that they just, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit and they rise up. They're starved to death. They're whipped. They're beaten. They're cut. They're flayed. Uh, you read Hebrews Paul's description, or Corinthians, I think it is in Corinthians, the description of what's going on. I mean, they were flayed alive, burned in oil. These guys were uh, not treated nicely, nothing that we could even comprehend. Mm-hmm. And yet the faith grew. Yeah. And the church grew. Yeah, his you, power is made perfect. Yeah, his power is, say it again. His power is made perfect in my weakness. Yeah. So I'll boast all the more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it, um, uh, oh gosh, torture for Christ. Richard Wormbrenner, the Richard Wormbrand, he came and testified to the United States Con- uh, Congress in the fifties, and they had they punctured his side with a pole, uh, a metal pipe, and his testimony was when they would come into the cell to beat him. He didn't see their faces. He saw Jesus. And he said, I can't explain it, but there wasn't, it wasn't a, what you might think for me. So yeah, that's what we pray. God is protecting we know there's people suffering right now. Yes. Now the serpent in verse three, chapter verse one of chapter three. Now the serpent was more subtle and crafty than any living creature of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he, Satan, said to the woman, can it really be that God has said you shall not eat from every tree of the garden? So the serpent, who is this creature? Satan. Satan. Huh? How, what do we know about Satan? Father of lies. Father of lies. What's that? Crafty. Crafty. Yeah. He's a fallen angel. He's a fallen angel. How do we know that? Scripture's dead in Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah. The, the five I wills. <laughs> That's right. Let's look at that real quick. In Isaiah 14, for some reason, I feel like we should look at, actually look at this. Isaiah 14, and I don't have to get my assistant out here. 21, or 12 through 21. You have it? Yeah. Go ahead. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art there cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? All the kings of the nations, even all of them, lie in glory, everyone in his own house. But thou art cast down out of thy grave like an abominable branch, and as the raiment of those that are slain, Thrust through with a sword that go down to the stones of the pit, as a carcass trodden under feet. Thou shalt not be joined with them in burial, because thou hast destroyed thy land and slain thy people. The seed of evildoers shall never be renowned. 
prepare slaughter for his children for the iniquity of their fathers. Uh, they, they do not rise nor possess the land nor fill the face of the world cities. Thank you. So this is where there's actually another passage as well, Ezekiel 28. That's where we see all the stuff that's happening with this fallen angel. And then over in Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15, we also see a little more about what's going on here. Um, and it starts out like this, Son of man, take up your lamentation against the king of Tyre and say unto him, Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis and topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your tabernacles and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. He was quite different. And the reason I wanted to, to us to read those verses um, and I hope you're familiar with those verses and the, and the origin and the fall of Lucifer to Satan is because the fall of man was not the first fall. The first fall was in heaven. And what is so amazing to me about that fall is this fact. Here you have these angelic beings. They saw God. They were in the eternal heaven. They could access the throne room according to the first two chapters of Job. We don't see God. We perceive God. There's a very big difference. And then Revelation tells us that a third of the angels join in that rebellion with Lucifer, with Satan, and go against God. The beings that could experience his presence, that could see his true majesty, know his glory, his power, all of that, in fact, Job uh, 28, 7 says, and all the sons of God shouted for joy when, when the worlds were created. They all, one translation says, all the angels of God sang together with the majesty of what they witnessed in his power and the awesome creation he made in this universe. They were just, oh, just amazing, right? So they could see all that. And yet the one that was made for bringing glory to God, the one who was designed to bring worship to God, tried to seize the throne of God and take glory from himself. And it seems to me that God made people like us to know us personally, one-on-one, to relate to us one-on-one. While we cannot completely understand the magnitude of God, his glory, his majesty, his awesomeness. And it seems to me that God wanted to give people kind of a zone of neutrality where you wouldn't see all the stuff the angels had seen, but you'd be able to perceive that, boy, something's going on here. Somebody had to put this together. And they had a lot of intelligence and a lot of power, and they still got it going. So there's something going on here. There has to be a God. Like it says in in Romans 1, 20, you know, his divine attributes are clearly made visible by those around us, yet it's muted and it's not overwhelming. And to me, it seems this place, this world has just been made for us to be able to receive the knowledge about God and to make our choice about God the same way Adam and Eve had to make their choice about God. A place where people could freely accept to receive help from him without feeling overwhelmed by God, pressured into it and allowed each one to choose 
knowing, and God did all this knowing how it would end and what would happen. Knowing that, as it says in Ephesians 1, 4 through 7, that there would be a lame slain from the foundation of the world. Knowing that all this would go afoul, he still engaged in it to go through it. And the reason I think he did it is because it's all about God's glory. How magnificent and glorious he is to allow all of this to transpire, to receive the wounds and take the hits and take the insults and take the rejection and take the rebellion, knowing all the time is preparing a salvation for us. That hope. And all that demonstrates the grace of God. The honor brings honor to God. It shows the ultimate knowledge of God, shows the power of God while displaying his immense grace towards us and in, um, in this place, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, our salvation really is not about us. Our salvation is really about God and bringing glory to God. He can take fallen creatures like us and change us and redeem us. Yes, sir. I just try to remember, remind myself, and I say it um, many, many times during the day. You are the God of my righteousness. Mm. I don't have any righteousness. If, if Jesus, my God, my Lord, you know, if you know, He is the God of my righteousness, and and I I receive that, you know, from yes. Him. And I remind myself often through the day that you are the God of my righteousness because I don't always do right, and I don't always think right, and I and I don't do what I should do, and I do what I don't do, but. He is still the God of my righteousness. And so, yeah, and we do. We put on that cloak of righteousness that Christ won for us. And that's how God now sees us when he looks at us. Kind of like you're talking about Richard Wormbrenner, but he looked at his, 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 the men who were beating him up in that jail cell. He didn't see their faces. He saw the face of Jesus. First Peter 1.20 also speaks to this. Um, it, it's all through the scripture. So, the next part I want to get to about the temptations they're facing is that the, the, it's not just knowing good from evil. All right. When Adam and Eve are going to this tree and they're taking the fruit, it's not just they're going to know what good and evil is. There was a little kernel of truth in the temptation the snake brought that day in the garden that you will now know and have the power to determine what is good and evil. And that's where we are today in our culture. We have taken that authority from, it goes back to authority again. We've taken that authority from God because truly the authority of God establishes says, nope, this is good and this is bad. This is right and this is wrong. But then when we step into that place of authority, which is what Adam and Eve did, and we do it personally ourselves all the time, we didn't say, well, well, this might be bad to God, but I think it's not that bad. So I'm going to put it here in the good column. And this might be good to God, but it doesn't seem right to me. So I'm going to take that and put it over here in the bad column. And we take that authority, which does not belong to us, and we exchange what is good and what is bad. And then we begin to live by that. And it's displayed today in our culture right now. I mean, we are undergoing such upheaval. I mean, you talk about a change in the system. This is a complete abrogation of divinely established right and wrong, determining what was right and wrong from the beginning. And their actions that they took that day, Adam and Eve, when they decided to take that authority to choose and say what is right and wrong, it forever polluted the creation of God and introduced this entity known as sin into his creation. 
But we see that that particular temptation of the devil, it plays out today. And that authority does not belong to us because it was won by Christ. And we, one of the things about God in deciding what is good and what is bad is he does it through his power of his knowledge because he knows what will be truly harmful to you and what actions and thoughts will lead to hurt and death. And that's how he established what is truly sin. Uh, for us. And today our culture is completely rejecting that idea. In fact, our culture has gone from the point of view of no longer deciding what is wrong and wrong, right and wrong to the point of deciding that there is no longer truth. Truth does not exist because Mr. Roy's truth is not the same as Michael's truth. And Karen's truth is not like Susie's truth. And Harold's truth is not like, and where does it stop? But, but, but yeah, but Glenn's right. So his truth stands. And I'm going to enforce my truth on you. And so we don't know what marriage means. We don't know what, what a man is, what a woman is. I mean, we're completely upending everything in our culture and everything is changing and it's out of order and our culture is upside down. And it's because people have taken this particular point of authority from God and they really just screwed it up because you're not the creator. You're the creature. And that which is created can never supersede that which created it. You just can't. So when he says, I will ascend to the mountain of God and I will exalt myself and I will be above all this God, he is, that's what he's doing. And that's what we do when we engage in those sins. So we set up these parameters in our minds and we try to change the world as we know it. And it's become saturated with this, not even self-governance, but self-deification that I'm God and I'm God and I can decide what is right and wrong. And it undermines everything that God set up for us as far as meaning, purpose, morality, destiny, origin. It all comes unwound. And of course, it all climaxes there at the end in that temple where they're giving worship to the Antichrist. So how can this happen? How can anyone not see the man behind the mask? How can they not see that the devil is doing all this? And people don't rise up and refuse him. But when we look around, we see this all right here, right now. And our culture does say, what is truth? Remember what Pilate's question was to Jesus when he was being at the trial? What is truth? What is truth? And the embodiment of truth stood before Pilate right there. And Pilate walked away. And that's what happens. People walk away. They don't want to embrace the truth. And yet it is that truth about Jesus that is so freeing for us and liberating. It sets us free and sets us out. Now, I want to make some uh, very difficult dichotomy here that I think that on the one hand you have Einstein, on the other hand you have I am created in the image of God. And if you go down the I'm a sinner path too long, uh, then you say, well, then I guess I'll just go eat worms and die. And I think you have to remember that uh, you mentioned it earlier, justice and judgment can be a blessing. So if you, there is a curse, but the curse brings the judgment. And once the judgment is executed, if you fall underneath it, like this man said, I have committed crimes. I won't accept that pardon. I'm guilty. He accepted it. Somebody could have come along there. The thief on the cross accepted 
he had done wrong. And once he came under that notion, then he's ready to receive the forgiveness and the love and the, and the care, and he can become new. And life can become different. Um, if we only stay on this side of the, the ledger, the negative side, life is just awful. There's no hope. And you started this thing out with hope. Once you make your declaration that I'm coming under the judgment of God, but I'm also coming under the mercy and forgiveness of God, then life can be good. And you can, but it comes with obligations and duties and responsibilities, not to man, not to myself, because I'm dead to myself, but to God. And then it is no longer I that liveth, but Christ that liveth in me. So I don't, I don't exalt myself, even though I started with this premise. This is the, this is the conundrum. I've, I've taken a minute or two to say it. I am created in the image of God, and therefore I'm worthy. So I started with myself, lifting myself up. What I realized, though, is I have no righteousness within myself. So I have to go to the creator to find worth in myself, not to what I've done, what I say, the thing, what other people say about me. If I do that, then that becomes idolatry. Does, does this make sense what I'm saying? I can get out of this negativity of, the, of what a worm I am, what a wretch I am, and get over here because God has said you are worthy. You're worthy of death. You're worthy that I love you so much I would die for you. That's how much I love you. Therefore, I can think positively about myself, but only as I put it in this side of the ledger that because God deems me worthy, am I worthy? If I start thinking I'm worthy because of something I've done, I'm back over here and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and there's none righteous, no, not one, and oh well, let's just all go die. The world's a mess. I hate it. I'm here to do There's nothing I can do. He has created you for glory. But how can I get? Well, we've already told you that. Come under his authority and then go do right. Yep. Get you out of the negativity of this side. And this thing that I can't ever think nice about myself. Right. Well, God is. He thought so much of you that he died. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a verse that's like, <clears throat> God accepts who you are despite who you aren't. You know, it's like, yeah, you aren't righteous and you are sinful, but God still accepts you. And, and what you will find is, when, when God plumbs the depths of your depravity, and he will with the Holy Spirit, you will see how wicked you are. You will see how, back to Romans, how gracious he is. Because you thought he was saving you because you stole some money. Oh, you didn't even, you didn't even know how bad you were. Mm -hmm. But when he shows you how bad you were, and he forgave that too, yes. All, yeah. all the way down to the depths of how wicked you are. That's how much he loved you. And grace increased 
to satisfy. It's I want us to look at one of the curses as we close, in particular, the, uh, the curse of the woman. So what was the curse of the woman, right? That she would uh, be painful in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And then there was a promise that went with the curse. A blessing. Yeah. A hope. Yeah. The hope was that one day your seed would produce a rescuer. One would come to save you. And that seed would have his heel bruised, but he would crush the head of this serpent. This one that started all this mess that y'all just are going through right now. That serpent will be punished one day by someone who comes from you. Now, the thing is this, of course, that um, women have eggs. Men have seed. This is the first proclamation of the gospel is in the curse. And in that curse, we see also the virgin birth. Because a woman cannot, does not have seed. She cannot produce a, an offspring. Are you with me? This is the first time we see this. Now, let me go one further for you than that. So let's do a little road to Emmaus. All right. Let's pretend we're on the road to Emmaus again. Jesus is walking with Cleopas and the other disciple, and they're going along. And Jesus reminds him of this verse and says, well, you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, right? What was the curse? Oh, you know, the ground's curse, the woman's curse, the serpent's curse. And what's the promise? Well, one day a rescuer would come, a redeemer would come. And how would he come? To the seed of the woman. But the woman doesn't have seed. Oh. Now, the one that has to come would therefore have to be born of a virgin, right? Hey, wait a minute. Didn't they say Jesus was born? Mary always told us that Jesus didn't have a daddy, an earthly father. She always said that when she was hanging out with us, right? I didn't even see that. Look at that. Wow, that's neat. The Messiah was virgin born. It was right there from the beginning where the curse was pronounced. But then Jesus, in my mind, as I imagine the road to Emmaus sermon, because I don't have a copy of it, also goes one further. He says, did you see the crucifixion that day? This friend of yours that died? No, no, I wasn't hiding. I didn't see it. What, did, have you ever seen a crucifixion? Oh, man, are you kidding me? The crucified are all over the place. The Romans just line them up as you go into the main entrance of any town. You ever looked at them closely? It's like, well, I really try not to. Have you ever noticed their feet? Their feet? What are you talking about? Have you ever noticed that when they're dead on that cross, what their legs look like and their heels look like? Well, now that you mention it, I think I have seen it once. What do they look like? Well, they're black and blue, like they're bruised, like they've been beat up. You see, that's what would have happened, what you would have seen that day when Jesus was crucified, if you had been standing there looking at it, because it's a medical term. It's called liver mortis. And liver mortis is this thing that happens with everyone who dies. All the blood in your body when you die is pulled by gravity to the lowest point in your body. This one way investigators are able to help solve murders and crimes. The body, well, the body wasn't here when it died. How do you know? Well, all the blood's halfway on this side, like it was in the back of a trunk before, before it ended up in the bed. You know, the autopsy report comes in. It's a, this is a foul play here. So quite literally that day at the crucifixion of Jesus, if you'd been looking at the cross, you would have seen the crucified Lord slain on the cross and his heel would have been bruised when it says you will bruise his heel 
and he will crush your head. It happened. It happened that day. Now, here's my challenge to you. My challenge to you is this. We will all live with angels one day. All of us will live with angels one day. In fact, everyone who's alive in the world today and who's ever lived and ever will live will one day live with angels, which is a magnificent thought. Now, the dilemma is this. Some of us will live with holy angels in heaven. Others will live with fallen angels in hell. And we pick. We are granted a point of choice. We're allowed to choose. And that choice, we have a pathway in that choice. One pathway is a pathway of hope. Leads to life. The other pathway is a pathway of lies. It leads to death. Now, you know the hope. And you know the truth. So my question and challenge to you is this. Who are you sharing your hope with people need hope and the hope they really need is the hope of Jesus Christ. So my challenge to you this week is to share your faith, the hope that you know, and you have with someone who needs to hear someone who needs hope. All right, let's pray. Father God in heaven, we are so very grateful for the hope that you bring, even in the curse and the judgment, there's a promise of new life and redemption and a rescuer. Help us as we embrace that pathway of hope and truth to share it with all we need, to take the hope that you have given us and to give it away to somebody else so they can experience what we know, who you are, how you love. In the name of Jesus, amen.